symbol of excellence in sports entertainment. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Conrad. How you start casting it up? You're you're busier than fruit merchants, my granny would say. I you're am. Out there, you're out there, baby. So things are looking good, I hear. Yes, sir. We're having a lot of fun. I can't believe it's a real thing, but uh, we got the Horseman reunion. We got the roast of Ric Flair. We got Daniel uh, Brian Danielson on stage, Bret Hart on stage. Something for everybody. Starcast.com. Coming your way at the end of July, July 29th is the roast. The 30th is an incredible set of panels. Another amazing set of panels on the 31st. And that night, I can't believe this is a real sentence. We're doing Ric Flair's last match, Jim. How about that? Uh, it's awesome. I, I, I can't wait to see it. I hope it's, uh, everything that it's, it's got great hype and a lot of anticipation. So anybody that's got a chance to see it uh, in person, you should go, uh, it won't happen again. Enjoy it and, uh, enjoy the memories that were created by the nature. So it should be good, man. Good. I, I know it's going to be successful. That lineup you got is it's, uh, epic. Absolutely. Epic. I appreciate it, man. I think this is the strongest one we've had. You know, we got Bret Hart talking SummerSlam 92 with Kenny McIntosh. Uh, we got Kevin Nash doing his first live podcast with Sean Oliver from kayfabe commentaries. We got Mick Foley debuting his first live podcast. Foley is pod. Uh, we got Brian Danielson up there with our friend Renee doing the sessions, her big podcast, uh, something for everybody, but maybe the thing I'm looking forward to most is the roast of Ric Flair, a star studded affair, a whole bunch of celebrities, you know, Rick's Rolodex is unlike any other and bet, yeah. <laughs> you know, whether you're looking for uh, action stars or television stars, professional athletes or comedians, uh, there's going to be something for everybody, but the, not just Ric Flair's last match on Sunday, but the undercard. I think folks are going to really enjoy, and I hope they enjoy our show today because we're talking about a pay-per-view that happened 30 years ago, beach blast, 1992, uh, probably most fondly remembered for cactus Jack versus sting and a false count anywhere match. And just saying that out loud makes me say, sign me up. I love that idea. Cactus Jack <laughs> and sting. That's perfect. Yeah. They have great chemistry, Conrad. They liked each other. They were unselfish and it always made for good matches. Good storytelling. So, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a great main event. Well, last month we looked at wrestle war 92, which was held five weeks earlier on May 17th. So we've got three major shows in really a three week period here. Uh, let's talk about the new goings on though. It's mainly centered around WCW's new man in charge, Bill Watts, the cowboy coming into the company. Were you excited about this or did it feel like you had graduated from that point in your career? I mean, this is a political environment here. What was your thinking when you heard, Hey man, Watts is coming to town. Well, I was very surprised Conrad, cause like I said before, uh, I didn't Bill and I didn't talk about him coming to Atlanta before he came. So I didn't know he was even uh, considered for the job or the job was open. Of course, I also didn't know the kit Fry was going to be re re resigning. Right. So, uh, I'd like to say I was really excited and, and jacked about it, but I just wasn't sure that. Uh, the absence of being away from the business and, and, and working with talents and so forth and so on, uh, was still something Bill was real interested in. So I was a little bit leery to be honest with you. And I knew that if he got settled in and, and, and got in his own lane and created his own way, he could do, he could do great things. 
I just wasn't sure what his communication skills were going to be this long removed from action. I'm excited to talk about Kip Fry. He quits the company on Wednesday. Meltzer would say it came as no surprise to anyone. Fry reportedly had no idea they were literally pulling the rug from underneath him when it came into power in the hiring of, of Bill Watts as the vice president in charge of wrestling operations. Quote, while Fry was given a figurehead position to save face, nobody expected it to last. According to several reports, Fry was transferred within the Turner organization and will work under Jack Petrick in a proposed new division, which the Turner empire will produce records, films, and Broadway shows. Fry spot and the number two man on the company will be Jim Ross. I'm not certain whether Ross is officially titled vice president, but he'll be handling the production of all the TV shows, the marketing, the merchandising, and will become the company liaison with Turner home entertainment, which is in charge of pay-per-view events. So let's take a pause right there. So there's a lot going on here very quickly. Uh, Kip was, was sort of steering the ship, if you will, once, um, Jim Hurd was out and now here comes Bill Watts and it's written here in the observer that Mr. Fry didn't really expect that. Is that the way you remember hearing that? Yeah. Yeah. It was a surprise. Another one was knee jerk deals and, uh, he probably deserved better to be honest with you. Kip Fry was a good guy. I don't know how many people you heard you talked a bit too, too about Kip, but you'll have a hard time finding people that just, you know, damn him. You know, he was a good deal. He's a decent dude. Uh, he loved his Duke blue devils. I know that. Uh, but I always enjoyed working around. Him. He was, had a very pleasant demeanor. He just didn't have any product knowledge. Right. And somewhere along the way, you're going to wonder how these wrestling companies believe they can be successful by hiring somebody that's in a decision-making process that doesn't understand the business. Right. And that'd be like, you know, Hey, Conrad, I want to buy a new house. I want to get a mortgage. Well, you know, I don't know if I can do that. Well, you're in a mortgage business. Well, I know, but you know, ain't no, but you, you right. are in the mortgage business. Right. So, uh, I don't know. I, I like, like I said, I, I didn't have any issues with kit, but all those things I was, that I just heard I was signed to do is that's news to me. To be honest with you. Okay. So, so he got that wrong. Let's talk a little bit about that though, because Eric and I have spent a lot of time talking about this and I don't think a lot of our listeners maybe have figured this out, but these days, as we're talking now in 2022, man, the, the number one chief revenue item for a wrestling promotion is the television rights fees. Of course, this is a wrestling company owned by a television company. So there are no rights fees associated with it. So whereas WWE makes a billion dollars for SmackDown or whatever, WCW in theory makes $0 for producing the television because it is in fact, a television company. So it's a totally different whole new ball of wax, as they say, but let's talk about Turner home entertainment, because I've often heard that the, the revenue that was derived from pay-per-view, well, that didn't go on WCW's ledger that went on Turner home entertainment and the same for the video cassettes because VHS were a big deal. Yeah. You talk about being at a disadvantage all these years. It was said, we know WCW never turned a profit until 1995. Well, goodness gracious. If they're not getting paid for their TV and when they sell a pay-per-view or a video cassette, they don't get credit for that either. Well, it's no wonder we couldn't turn a profit, right? Yeah. Well, it's just a, it's just a, a, a great look at how disrespected the, the brand was. Yes. Nobody wanted to be associated with the old tar baby thing, you know, wrestling. Oh, uh, that's not going to be good for my resume. Just, I was working in wrestling. So it's, that's kind of, but that was the general feeling all along. 
you know, wrestling was kind of looked like the deal proverbial redheaded stepchild. And I got nothing against redheaded stepchildren. It, it, it's amazing to me that, you know, WCW existed as long as it did in this yep. record. Um, yeah, it's it a hard place to work Conrad because of reasons, just like you're outlining. Uh, Meltzer would say on Ross's radio show Sunday night, most of the callers and questions revolved around the hiring of Watts with probably few, if any listeners realizing the promotion Ross himself had just received. Ross talked about the center stage tapings on June 1st and June 2nd, which will be the first tapings Watts is in charge of and said that people won't be waiting hours to see wrestling matches in reference to the tapings of the new Saturday night TBS show. That was Fry's brainchild, which saw few matches taped at each taping and long delays for the fans attending as all the live segments were taped. So I think we both agree that while Kit may have been a great guy, that yeah. idea of making you essentially a talk show host and less wrestling, more talking, that was maybe not the best idea. I agree. Yeah. I was uncomfortable with it. I didn't, I didn't, didn't like being out there in that environment, uh, because I didn't think the fans were going to like it, no matter who's what guests we had. Right. And, and, uh, so it wasn't a good concept. This was, it was built to fail and it did. All right, let's hit it. Let's talk about what's next here on the program. We, uh, we got to talk about the Saturday show. Meltzer would say the Saturday show will almost surely have another major overhaul, which will become evident on TV in three more weeks. Ross likened Watts to Vince Lombardi, the late and legendary pro football coach. And that his philosophy isn't that winning is everything, but that winning is the only thing. He said a lot of the current wrestlers may be going through culture shock because of the heavy discipline that's going to be imposed. And he doesn't know how many of the current crew will survive. Ross surmised there could be as great as a 30 to 40% turnover when things are said and done. Now, are you saying this just because it's great entertaining radio, or did you really believe, Hey man, that may be it. They may not be uh, back after this. Well, I didn't think a lot of guys from that culture, that age group were going to, uh, go easily into the night with Cowboys philosophy. So I figured that there'd be plenty of guys that would, uh, opt to go somewhere else where it might be a little bit easier in their view. So, uh, I didn't know what the number was, uh, you know, but whether it was entertaining radio or not, I appreciate the compliment, but, uh, the, the, the drift of it was just being honest with the audience that we're going to probably be having a big change over here. Uh, at least that's what it looks like thus far. So Steve Austin picks up the WCW TV title from Barry Windham on May 23rd in Chattanooga at the worldwide tapings and the 25 match card would see Paulie dangerously distract the ref after Windham hit a DDT and slid Windham's belt to Austin who hit Windham with it and gained the fall. So this is really one of the first times we see Steve on a national stage, win a major title. And I guess how debate, how major the WCW TV title is debatable. But still it's on TV, you know, and as far as the pecking order goes, there's the world champ, there's the U S champ, and then there's the TV champ right. and you're beating a guy like Barry Windham, who in 1992 could still go and wrestle his ass off. This has to be a vote of confidence for Steve and a, a cool feather in the cap for a young man on his journey. Yeah. Watch saw great talent and Steve and potential. Uh, he was the kind of guy that watch could build around. And just like we did in the attitude era, you know, Austin was a winner and he was going to be do good. So, uh, he was just, uh, had not been tapped. So cowboy likes stone cold and for all the right reasons. It's amazing too. When you just think about this sentence, the 25 match card. Now I realize it's a TV taping. 
Uh, yep. and, and I realize we're trying to tape several in a row, but I can't imagine the burnout that the crowd must feel and, and the unenviable task that, a, that, a, a booker, if you will, would have, how do I keep these fans energized and, and entertained and lively for the television uh, camera, 25 matches deep. That's a tall ask. Oh yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's too much. Yeah. It's too much. And, and why we thought it would work, uh, just. I don't know. It is, it's just, it's illogical. It was illogical. It's still illogical. You just can't do that. So, uh, and now we all see the importance of a te- live television audience, you know, AEW dynamite is fun to watch because the crowd is so into things They're they're attuned, uh, they're participating. And, uh, we didn't have that back in those days. I could only imagine, uh, the momentum we could have probably built if we had the same kind of live events crowd then as we do now on Wednesday nights and the other major angle, the Larry Zabisco turn was completed, right? Dave Meltzer. They had a match set up with Austin versus Zabisco dangerously. And Zabisco came out for an interview and dangerously called Zabisco trash and said, it's nothing personal, but blamed him for all the recent losses. Zabisco slapped dangerously and was attacked from behind by Austin during the singles match. Zabisco had Austin in an abdominal stretch when dangerously jumped on the apron. Zabisco pulled dangerously into the ring as dangerously gets the ref diverted. Bobby Eaton hits a knee drop on Zabisco and Austin pins him. And this is to build first to Eaton versus Zabisco at the houses. So let's talk about that. Larry Zabisco, I felt like was a classic natural heel. And now we're going to try to turn him as a baby face. We're really dissolving uh, the dangerous Alliance. And I think a lot of times we, we sort of look back and think, man, what could have been with the dangerous Alliance? I yeah, it was, sh- it was shut off too quick, Conrad. Cut short too quick. Uh, too soon. Yeah, they had the ability to be one of the great factions of all time. I'm not saying that they weren't. I thought they were just tremendous, uh, and I enjoyed all their work. And collectively, that's just it was just an amazing group of talent. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was tough. It was, it was tough getting re- getting resets, shall we say, uh, with the booking. Those are tough times. I can tell you that right. When Cowboy first came back, all the stuff, you know, we were having to do and team up and help him because he didn't know about writing a TV show with, uh, the, the breaks we had and all that. It wasn't his old format, his old one hour format. That was 42 minutes long. So, and that's what he was used to doing. You know, he never did a, uh, I don't, I never worked for bill. We ever did a show over an hour and I did hundreds of hours of television for Cowboy never did one over an hour. So he had to learn that philosophy and that format and get that down. And, uh, so there was a lot of learning, learn the learning curve at that point in time was very challenging. Talk to me about bill Watts. Why do you think, I assume that this is bill Watts choice to cut the dangerous Alliance off, but did you salary? It was all about the payroll. It was all about the payroll. That's what it was. It wasn't. He did not dislike the dangerous Alliance, uh, and their personnel. He, but he, he thought that they were as a unit, as a group, uh, he had a lot of money tied up in one entity with four or five guys. What we needed was four or five guys to develop their own thing and not be a part of one entity and spread it out a little bit. We had no depth. So here we are putting all these top guys in one group. So now they're isolated in that area, uh, in that little compartment. So it, uh, it was, 
it was out of salary and lack of depth that, that all those things kind of came about. Uh, Meltzer would write this. Watts said his first priorities are to build back the television ratings because you can't get viewers back to the arenas unless they first watch the television. Concentrate in particular on rebuilding attendance at the Omni and put together a product in which the credibility and believability holds up as a total contrast to the WWF. On paper, this sounds awesome, but I, I am curious from your perspective. 1992, it seems like is a down year. The WWF isn't where it once was. Certainly, WCW is not yet profitable. Did you consider the wrestling business by 1992 to be cyclical, or did you only start to hear that later? Well, I always felt that the wrestling business is cyclical, no matter <clears throat> what era. It depends on who's hot, what angles get over, the storylines that you're developing, uh, catch on fire and, and cr create that lasting interest. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that, uh, I don't know, Conrad, it's just, it, it was just a tough time. It was probably one of the more challenging times in my entire career, uh, when Cowboy came in because so many changes were made and, 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 uh, it, people looked at me <clears throat> because I was, uh, you know, watch this boy and all that shit. Uh, and so a lot of his, his, uh, runoff, shall we say run over or whatever, uh, I got part of the blame for it because I was Watts' guy, which I wouldn't make any of those decisions, but, uh, instead of confronting him and conversing with bill, you know, I'd get a little of that side and those, those stuff. And I just challenge guys, you got the balls to talk to me this way, which is fine. I don't care but you're not going to get your problem solved. Do you really want your problem solved or do you want to just bitch about it? Right. Did you think, uh, you know, I mean, Eric Bischoff on his podcast all the time says, Hey, in, uh, in life or in business, you've got to be less than better than, or different than, and I don't think anybody in WCW thought they could be better than maybe you can correct me on that. Certainly they didn't want to be viewed as less than nobody wants to be number two on purpose. So the right positioning is to be an alternative and different than, and I, I think Watts is probably onto something here. Maybe if we do less cartoon shit, like they were doing over in the WWF, uh, we can, we can offer something different than, did you believe that would work or did that feel too old school for you? I thought we, I thought we had to do alternative programming. I thought yeah. we had to counter program and, uh, that in, in this instance, counter programming would mean more wrestling, more logical, uh, presentation. Uh, at least that's how I saw it, but, uh, you had to have an alternate, you had to have a, uh, a different point of view. You had to have a different presentation, a different feel. And, uh, so I, I was for that, quite frankly, it just was going to take some time to get there. And I don't, we never did really get there. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about is bill trying to focus on the Omni. Uh, the Omni is, is of course, based in Atlanta where WCW and Turner are. So it is essentially their big home arena. Yes. They're center stage, but that's a small venue. The Omni is where we can sell a lot of folks, hopefully on coming to see the matches. And for years and years, people have talked about how Vince McMahon and his father and just the whole McMahon family viewed the garden as the home of WWE. It was their special building. And, and, and as, once upon a time, Watts had the Superdome for his big shows and, and the Crockett's had Greensboro for their big shows. Do you think that this is an old school mentality to try to build on the home arena or it just makes sense to 
build at home and then hopefully take it on the road and, and, and build out there as well. Well, building at home also helped the, the, uh, the, the local, the local feel, the, you know, getting a big crowds back into the Omni and with some Turner employees there to see that the wrestling product was fun and it was successful and it was doing better, uh, was, you know, pretty much a key directive. Uh, but it was almost as if, uh, the territory quote unquote goes as does the Omni no different than the garden, no different than the Keel auditorium of St. Louis, all these territories had their city that if that city was profitable and, and drawing, that means usually meant that the territory is in pretty good shape and going in the right direction. So uh, that was kind of the situation there to me was, you know, they just want to take care of the home base, want to have some success for the locals and some of the decision makers and Turner could see that things were not a lost cause, that there was hope. Uh, so I think that was kind of the, the main thing there, but as the Omni went, so it normally did the resting on TVS. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, the, the other quote here that I think is going to get some people talking WCW wrestlers this past week, all received a letter officially listing the new rules. Most of which had been previously speculated upon here or talked about in a previous announcement to the wrestlers. When Bill Watts appeared at a house show a few weeks back in Savannah, Georgia, anyway, effective June 1st, the rules now dubbed the 10 commandments by the wrestlers go as follows. Number one, use of the ring barricades and the ring post is forbidden. And will also be a cause for an automatic disqualification. Let's break these down as we go through them here. What do you think of that? Can't use the barricade. Can't use the ring post. If you do, it's a DQ. What say you? No problem. If they don't, if referee didn't catch you, then it's a, it's a, it's a good piece of business. I got you. And that's what these rules are designed to be. <clears throat> Not that you can't do it. Storytelling device. You can't get caught doing it. Yes. Uh, number two, wrestling outside the ring is discouraged. Number three, absolutely no low blows. First offense is a thousand dollar fine. Second offense is a $2,500 fine. And the third offense is a $5,000 fine and will be considered a breach of contract. If a wrestler is hit low, he is to make every effort to not sell the move as a low blow. What do you make of this? Confusing. Yeah. A little confusing. Same deal. If you're caught hitting below the belt, you get disqualified. Don't overthink it. And I think that's it was one of those times we overthought that a little bit, but, uh, uh, the, 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 everything was all the rule of stuff was simply, you can't do this. And if you get caught doing it, you're going to get disqualified. You're going to lose the match. You get the loser share of the purse, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but it was, uh, a little bit of a culture shock for some of the boys because cowboy was taking away some of their shortcuts. And he didn't say not do it. He just said, don't do it in front of the referee. And that, that was kind of, kind of where it was. And a lot of the guys didn't, didn't want to work hard enough to conceal their cheating it's old school stuff. So I didn't think it was that difficult to, to achieve, but apparently for some guys, it was problematic. 
All wrestlers, this is number four. All wrestlers are due in the building one hour before the scheduled starting time of the show with fines being implemented for being late of $1,000 for the first offense, $2,500 for the second offense, and $5,000 in a breach of contract for the third offense. Uh, punctuality. We've heard this be an issue with, uh, with Mr. Watts for a long time. Yeah. He used to not only say that, you know, being on time wasn't good enough. If you weren't so many minutes early, you were late. You weren't on time. Is that right? Now say that again. I didn't quite understand that. I've heard the idea that he would lock the door a few minutes before. Oh, but like if he said, Hey, you got to be here at one. If you weren't there by 1245, you were just asked out. You were late. I, I, I've never really heard that. I mean, I, I've heard stories along those lines, but I don't recall cowboy locking any doors or, or whatever, uh, you know, for meetings, you should, you know, I think everybody's pretty much on time for a, for a meeting. His big deal was just get to the live events or the TVs early enough to get your work done. And, and there was checks and balances put in. Here's the deal, Conrad. If you're not late, you got no issues. That's exactly right. Yeah. Come to work on time. You're cool. Uh, number five, missing an event, except in the case of the most severe injuries is considered a breach of contract. The only excusable exception to this rule is an act of God. Number six wrestlers who were injured and can't perform are still expected to make the town in order to show the fans that WCW will no longer falsely advertise talent. The only exception would be a crippling injury, which wouldn't allow traveling. Number seven, talking over the PA during the show is to be discouraged. Lewd hand gestures are prohibited as is cursing loud enough for the audience to hear. Here's one. Number eight fraternization between heels and baby faces in public is not acceptable. This includes traveling together to, and from the arena to public appearances, restaurants, and even to the gym. This also includes faces and heels socializing together in social situations and the gym. Now in 1992, the internet wasn't what it is now. It was very much a different business. Um, let's not forget that even though some people are going to make fun of this four years later, when the click hugged each other in MSG and Vince held them accountable. So this is 1992. This is four years prior. Just saying, I, I don't think this is that big of a deal. Like I, I get that this is something that this is the way the business has always been handled. Right, Jim. Yeah. Yeah. It's nothing new. Right. And it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise for everybody that this is going to be enforced. And it just maintained that, uh, aura of, uh, cloak of, I don't want to say secretness, but the cloak of mystery or whatever, but it's always been that way. It was all, and it feels well, that don't mean it's right. Well, it kind of means it's right in this situation. I mean, I don't need to have, uh, the, t the two combatants, uh, have them, see them having coffee. I don't, that just doesn't work for me and, uh, I, it shouldn't work for anybody. And I know probably K Fave is probably one of the most lax uh, old, uh, traditions still in pro wrestling. So at least I, that's my take on, I might be wrong. Uh, but, uh, fraternization is just not, it's not acceptable, especially at a, at the hotel or, or things of that nature. You know, <clears throat> cowboy made sure, <clears throat> pardon me. We spent so much time in Shreveport and Bossier city that, uh, the talents had to go to the heel stayed in one hotel, Labossier. And the, and the baby face stayed in another hotel. So the, some of the boys are staying in Bossier city in the hills and the baby face are staying in Shreveport. They're just next door to each other. So it's no big deal. Uh, but that was, uh, something just to me made sense, you know, uh, maintain the little era, aura of the mystery and, uh, don't flaunt it 
and just and hang with the baby face. If you're a baby face, it's not that hard of a deal. It's not like, you know, you're getting separation anxiety because you're not hanging with your buddy or he's got the best weed. And now you got to go to his room and his rooms in another hotel. This didn't work out that way. Uh, here's one number nine, no guests are allowed in the dressing room, including family members, media, et cetera. Uh, do you remember that being an issue in WCW at this point? Before? A little bit family members were, uh, becoming more prevalent in number and just bringing people to the workplace. And all of a sudden you get a, you know, uncle Joe's suggesting a finish. So let's <laughs> not do that. So yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, really just going back to some basic things Yeah. that when I first got in the wrestling business in the seventies were just matter of fact, day-to-day -day operational situations. And then number 10, each wrestler is allowed only two complimentary tickets to each show for friends and family. Any number of tickets above that must be purchased at face value by the wrestler. Uh, a lot's been said about these rules over the years, Jim, but, and I understand some people are going to hear these now in, in a 2022 context and say, oh, well, that doesn't sound right. Or that's not fair. But in 1992, I can't imagine that any of this, as you said, seems all that new or unusual. This is the way the business was when you first joined, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was nothing new. Just going back to basics yep. that had been left behind, uh, and shortcuts that we're trying to eliminate unnecessary chances that we're trying to eliminate because of injuries, the potential for injuries, things of that nature. So it was just a matter of going back, stepping back in time a little bit, no doubt. Uh, and some guys thought that was a, a mistake stepping back for anything, but you know, you had to, you got to change and you got to, you got to get better. And that's all we were trying to do is just to change and, and get back to some basic things that are going to make the product stronger at the end of the day. So Jim, let's talk a little bit about, um, the other news and notes here, because there's so many moving parts here with bill Watts. This is really going to be, uh, the basis of our show before we get to the show. Watts held a meeting on June 1st before the TV tapings under the auspices, uh, under his auspices and added some new directives. He's going to cut back on the length of TV tapings because he believes it burns out the fans and hurts the return gates in those cities. So the days of 25 match TV tapings are done. And what will be almost surely the most controversial new directive Watts has banned everything off the top rope. The theory behind the rule is that it enables the heels to get great heat. a la Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle in the early 1970s in the AWA, when they got incredible heat, when Stevens would illegally come off the top rope behind the referees back to lead to pinning baby faces. There you go. Yes. The idea is to cast Bobby Eaton in the Ray Stevens role on the heel side. However, in this day and age with fans accustomed to moves of that variety and with wrestlers like, uh, Ricky steamboat and Brian Pillman, not to mention Jushin Liger and great Muda eliminating all moves from the top rope is attempting to retrogress the in-ring product itself and take away what has probably been the single most universally accepted change worldwide of the past decade, which is the advent of the new hot acrobatic moves like moonsaults, Alabama jams, shooting stars, air Pillman's and the like. Now this is still something people talk about to this day, but as we laid it out, you gave it the attaboy. Yeah, clearly this is a storytelling device. It's something for the heels to use and, and get away with something and steal something. But could you also see how a guy like Brian Pillman or Jushin Liger would think, what am I going to do? That's half of my repertoire. Now you got to do it when the referee's not looking. That's yeah. all I can tell you. Uh, you know, it's not going to be, it's not easy. But hell, the business isn't easy. That's right. So, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, 
you know, I, to me, it made sense. Uh, but I also understand uh, a, a pillman or a liger or somebody in a situation like you outlined uh, having concerns. And I could get that. Uh, but it's just a matter of adapting your game plan a little bit uh, and then creating scenarios where the referee was either out of position or incapacitated and you got your big move in. So they got to see it. So that was kind of the theory behind it. But again, it was a cultural shock for a lot of talents because like you said, uh, they relied and depended upon some of these high flying moves to get their matches over. Uh, Watts also banned the juice as in blood telling the boys, the subject had become too controversial. Watts also addressed the subject of steroids and said he would have to find out what TBS's policy is regarding steroids. He said, if TBS doesn't want the guys on steroids, then nobody's going to be on steroids because if they are, they won't wrestle for WCW. And it's as simple as that. So there's lots of hurdles, lots of hot button issues. As a reminder, 1991 is where the world first learned from magic Johnson about HIV. I know it existed before that, but it wasn't a mainstream topic before that. And now blood is all of a sudden a, a hot button issue. And that feels like a major departure from the way things used to be where it feels like everything else that bill has implemented is based on, Hey, this is the way it used to be. Blood was a staple and now it's not, but his hands are kind of tied in that regard, just based on this political climate and what have you. Right. Yeah. Turner didn't, uh, they were not advocates of blood. They want a more family friendly product and not a lot of heavy juice. So it kind of went along with the company philosophy. And like you said, uh, we're still going through a scenario where we're learning more about, uh, contaminated blood and things of that nature. The, the, the scientific world kept evolving. Things kept changing. New information became available. So, uh, but the blood thing was, we might've got a little pushback from some of the guys. Uh, but not many. And, uh, uh and it, it just made sense. I think, uh, to, to, to legislate the blood situation so that, you know, you, you were talking about being, getting a lot of juice and being around people at ringside, you know, that's just, you don't want to do that Conrad. I mean, hell, right. I don't make, that's stupid. Right. So, uh, that's kind of how I saw that situation. And I think going forward, it seemed to me like I might be wrong about this. There might've been a situation where we've got some juice, but it was so unique at that point in time. It actually meant something. I can't remember. I thought there was a situation here or there where cowboy relaxed that for one match to tell us to finish telling a story. I might be wrong on that deal, but, uh, the juice was a, a forgotten memory in, by and large. And he just had to be more creative and come up with something else that did not include blood to help get your heat. Um, do you think Bill knew what he was getting himself into? No. I mean, okay. No, I don't think he, I think he thought he knew. I think he wanted to do well, but I don't think he was pre- prepared for the societal changes, uh, uh, within the locker room and the, and wrestling in general. Uh, I don't think he was prepared for that. And how could he have been prepared for it? he's living in Bixby, Oklahoma, for God's sakes, he wasn't even watching wrestling. Right. So, you know, uh, at that, to your point, at that point, I think he'd been out of the business for almost five years and, you know, wrestling moves pretty fast. I mean, just look how different the business is now to where it yeah. was five years ago in 2017, right. there was no all in, there was no AEW, uh, Bruce Pritchard's just doing a podcast. Things are a lot different. Yeah. Uh, do you think at this point 
And again, hindsight being what it is, do you think the business had maybe passed bill by it had evolved and, and he was at a disadvantage or was it just the political climate that meant he couldn't really succeed? I think it kind of passed him by. And when he saw how, how hard it was to push a great big rock up the hill, he lost a little bit of his, uh, enthusiasm. It just got to be another day, another problem, another issue. And you know, that's when it all came to a head, he just got, in a, he, he, you know, when, when he worked for, for McMahon. He just got in his rental car and drove home. I didn't know where the car was and he's driving home from Connecticut to Oklahoma. That's just cowboy. He's a little impulsive in that regard, but he's used to being the boss and used to be he's the alpha male, the biggest, the big elephant in the room, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, the cowboy was, he, he was unique in that regard. Very unique. So as some guys just, some guys never got used to it. You know, you hear guys, I, I did something the other day with Michael Hayes, a little tape thing for A and E and. Michael and myself and Jake Roberts and Teddy DiBiase and uh, everybody had stories of the cowboy and they weren't all, uh, uh, hearts and flower stories, right? You know, Hey, still thinks he gets screwed in his payoff in the Superdome and, you know, 40 years ago. So, uh, he's happy to tell that story. So, you know, uh, it was, it was a tough time to, I, I had less fun in 1992 when cowboy arrived than I had at any other time prior to that or after it just was a cluster and, uh, always people upset and, and uh, I don't know, it just was not a fun place to work at that point in time. Well, let's talk about what happens here on the episode that airs on June 13th. It's taped on the first and, uh, Watts is going to help host Saturday night and say, this is the beginning of a new era for WCW, the real deal. He calls the WWF a cartoon and he says the WCW won't have people throwing up on each other or being electrocuted. Uh, of course, this is referencing the ultimate warriors vomiting angle because of Papa Shango. And then of course, uh, the silliness with the electrocution at Halloween havoc with Abdul, the butcher in 1991. He also says the padding on the floor will be eliminated. And Watt says something to the effect that real wrestlers don't need a bunch of mattresses to fall onto quote. If that is Watts legit reason for removing the padding on the floor, then it doesn't seem justifiable and does seem to be behind the times. However, there's some dispute among the wrestlers as to whether or not the padding serves its designed purpose, which is lessening injuries from bumps to the floor. Certainly it lessens the hip and back injuries from bumps because the mats have more padding. However, some have argued it creates knee and ankle injuries when guys jump off the ropes. Uh, or the apron because their feet isn't la aren't landing on a solid foundation. Did you ever hear that? I mean, I have heard that before that yeah, the yeah. guy would tweak a knee or an ankle or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. The thicker the mats, the more danger you're in. Yeah. The thin mats didn't offer as much protection, but they didn't also have the, the, the health issues, shall we say of knees and ankles and other joints. Uh, so yeah, it was, uh, it, I've heard guys talk about that, you know, so it comes down to deal where you're damned. If you do and damned, if you don't, that's right. And then all of a sudden it's that way every day, something every day, damned, if you do damned, if you don't, and that gets old, uh, Gary Juster has been elevated to the head of all promoters. He's going to be responsible for hiring promoters, the touring schedule and overseeing the work of the promoters. I guess it's pretty important to have somebody be the point person for this. And, and why was it good for it to be Gary Juster? We don't talk about Exper Gary a lot. experience. Yeah. He lived in Atlanta. He'd been around a long time. Uh, the, the, he, he had the confidence of the, of the company. Uh, Gary always did a good job. Good guy. 
So this was logical that, uh, you know, he's a lawyer, he's a smart guy, lifelong fan, grew up in Vern's territory over the years. So, uh, to me, it was a no brainer. He was the perfect guy for that job. Uh, you went on John Arezzi's radio show in New York and said the Saturday TBS show would contain more spontaneous action, episodic television, and more emphasis on interviews. So it's a big adjustment, but we've never really spent any time talking about John Arezzi's old radio show. Uh, he was uh, ahead of the time in that era. You know, it wasn't a WCW radio show or a WWF radio show. It was an independent one. What'd you think of Arezzi's radio show? Well, I only, I don't think I ever listened to it uh, very often. You know, it was just, it, it wasn't as accessible to the digital means we have today. Right. Yeah. And I'm not as technically sound as, uh, I should be, as you well know, I have a hard time turning this damn computer on. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know Conrad, what the, uh, what the overall consensus was. John had a show on for quite some time, uh, showed his entrepreneurial spirit. He got sponsors and all those good things. But to be honest with you, because the accessibility of it and how you had to listen to it, uh, I didn't hear that show a lot, but you know, I never had any issues with John. We just had a straight interview and went on. And I don't know if I said anything controversial on it or not, but, uh, I, if I did, I don't recall. Uh, along with the change with Bill Wyatt's, you yourself have a lot going on quote, Jim Ross was hired on Friday as the new color commentator for the Atlanta Falcons for the upcoming season. Ross, who will retain all present administrative and announcing duties with WCW, will do both the pregame and postgame shows. Postgame being called a call-in show. Uh, now with uh, being the third man in the booth during the games, the Falcons radio network flagship is WSB, and Ross's wrestling talk show is the highest-rated talk show on the station, which probably is part of the reason he got the job. It's usually very hard for someone so well-known as a wrestling announcer, no matter how good they may be at announcing to get a break with legit sports because of how wrestling and everyone involved in wrestling is often perceived. So this really is a feather in Ross's cap to pull this one off. And Jim, just knowing you the way I do, boy, you love you some wrestling. And perhaps the only thing you love as much or more is football. And the idea that you got to be the voice or one of the voices for an NFL franchise, man, this has to be a banner day for Mr. Jim Ross. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Conrad. I felt very blessed and uh, appreciate the opportunity. Uh, that was the first year that Atlanta moved into the Georgia dome. So they wanted to clean, I'd say clean house. So the great Larry Munson was retiring. He was a play by play guy. They hired Bill Rosinski. So it was a dear friend of mine to this very day and Jeff Van note, number 57, the old center for, uh, the Falcons. So the three of us did the games, traveled on the team plane, went to all the games home and away. And somehow or another, we made it work. So, but I was, I had a, I had a blast, had a great time and met real good people. It was a dream country for me. It had a lot of work because now I'm working every day, every day during football season, because you got to prep, you got to go to the camp, you got to do interviews, you got to travel. So it was a, a fun time. That was my, that was my escape. The football games for the Falcons, even though we weren't very good, uh, we had some stars. We had, uh, we had, you know, Dion prime time and, uh, he liked me cause he was a wrestling fan and what he, and the reason he liked me is cause he knew I was friends with Ron Simmons and Ron Simmons is like a God at Florida state where Dion played college ball. Simmons was the man. Don't get make no mistake about that, but who was the man Dion? Well, Dion got more accolades. 
But as far as uh, in the locker room, the bull of the woods, as old Dusty would say, that was Ron Simmons. So I remember asking Dion one time, I said, uh, Hey, uh, Dion, can you talk to primetime about me doing an interview with him on Thursday for the pregame show this weekend? He said, you know, I will, I'll do that. I'll talk to prime tonight. I'll let you know tomorrow. He's talking about himself, the third, third part, third person or whatever you call it. And, but the next day I got my interview, he, he just was, yeah, I had fun. I had, I, I had a blast guys were fun. They were, that's where I got started having a good relationship with the Goldberg. Uh, you know, I, I ended up moving in and doing the, I was hosting the Jerry Glanville show from time to time, which is always a little adventure, but I had a lot of fun, Conrad. That was. Like I said, that was my outlet that, that kept my sanity a little bit to go to a big game and broadcast the game and, and being the third guy in the booth, be respectful of the time the other announcers had established and that, that their role was going to require. So, uh, I loved it. I, I wish I could have done more, but you know, the, the next season I was scheduled to do it again, but I got hired back to WWE and I moved to Connecticut. Hard to do football, Atlanta Falcon football in Connecticut. No doubt. Uh, so the new era for WCW started as a television Saturday with the introduction of Bill Watts as the VP and Meltzer would say, I had a mixed reaction to the first episode on, on a positive side as a longtime fan and had some nice nostalgia to hear Watts commentate on the matches as he did in the old mid South promotion. Watts has always been one of the best announcers, if not the best at dramatically getting angles across in a believable manner. He was even able to make some unbelievable ideas look and come across as realistic on the downside. There was just a feeling about how much wrestling has changed since that time. Watson, only Anderson doing uh, those early in the show interviews only made it too obvious how cutting a believable promo has almost become a lost art form. Let's take a time out right there. You and I've never spent time talking about how talented Mr. Watts was as a commentator. You're the goat. Everybody knows that. What'd you think of bill as a commentator? Oh, he's great. Great storyteller. What do you think? I got half my stuff timing, <laughs> timing, feel, uh, positioning, making sure you took care of the talents in the ring, no matter who's winning or who's losing. Everybody got their, they've got their hugs. Uh, cause if you don't beat anybody, then the match is useless. So even the guys that are, they're doing the honors, uh, should be gifted. And so that they are a viable loser in this respect that badly put. So, uh, but Bill's always a great storyteller. And when I started doing, when he, when he deemed that I was ready to do the, be the lead play by play guy back in mid South and the UWF, uh, you know, he was, uh, he, he had prepared me so strongly that it just became embedded in, in what I did. And I still use those principles today in a large sense, a lot of bill stuff was feel Conrad feel. Do you feel this match? Do you know why this match is taking place? Do you know what the, uh, the consequences are for the winner or the loser? All these things are basic fundamental things that you got to check those boxes. And because bill was the booker and writing TV and I was joined at the hip, I got to sit in on all those meetings and understand all that psychology. And it was, uh, it, it was invaluable. Quite frankly, I don't know that anybody has that opportunity nowadays, uh, cause the, the world of pro wrestling announcers is a little strange. Uh, there's just not a lot of jobs. So you see a few guys more often than not. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I guess it depends on what kind of job you're doing, but, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, 
I, I, I enjoyed the, uh, I, I enjoyed Cowboy's work immensely. I mean, he was my mentor. He was the guy that I got my, my shit from and my feel and my, and my passion. And there you went. So he loved my passion. And I think that's what got me stick around a little bit longer and then finally get over the hump where I was a, a resource, not just an announcer. Uh, so the other thing that Meltzer wrote, and he's kind of critical in this regard is he says that during the, pro, uh, during the show, when, when Watts is doing some commentary, he's talking about the traditions of pro wrestling in Atlanta and he's really hyping up Atlanta, but Meltzer correctly points out TBS is no longer an Atlanta station. It's a national station and, and the wrestling business has moved on and just technology and cable has moved on. So now you should be catering to more of a national audience and not just based on Atlanta stuff, but he does like the idea that it's a harken back to the way things used to be, but he felt like maybe Watts was putting too much emphasis locally, but you sort of laid out that that was probably part of the, the plan. You want to get the rest of the company on board. So let's celebrate Atlanta and let's maybe try to show off to those executives. Right. I think Milson missed the point there, Conrad, you know, the uh, I think we all realized that TBS was a national c- company. Yeah. Uh, nobody just woke up and figured that out. Uh, but again, giving the Turner employees, those involved in the, in the company, uh, a, a fun night out, a, a place to go, a destination to take their family, getting great seats and get, probably getting a, an all comped. That was what the deal was there. Uh, just to get the, have, have create an event that the Turner employees could attend and support, and maybe they'll be more apt to support us in other endeavors, uh, with, through their daily work. So that, that's where that came from. I, they missed the point on that one. Just my, my take on it. Well, we're finally here at the show and I'm so excited that we're at the show because this is a critical success. According to the observers, 79.5% thumbs up, but in terms of pay-per-view buys, well. It's down 35,000 buys from wrestle war and almost down a hundred thousand from super brawl Two. When you look at the product, is it any surprise how much the pay-per-view business had dropped off in your opinion, Jim? No, the product wasn't hot. We didn't have anything really cool other than, you know, new administration, things like that. Uh, but no, we had no momentum Conrad, you know, it was, uh, but we did have a good show and that's the first step in trying to rebuild your audience and the confidence in your product. So let's talk about where the show took place. Mobile, Alabama, because when I think of the beach, well, I don't really think of mobile. Uh, this is the first beach plan. <laughs> uh, it's the, it's a, a time to experiment. I guess normally WCW pay-per-views and big shows have a bunch of space uh, apart here. We we're just taking, we're, we're doing this pay-per-view four days after clash of the champions, 19, which was based around the beginning of the NWA world tag team tournament. It's also wedged in just 30 days after wrestle war and 30 days before the great American bash. So for a struggling product, this is a lot of big shows in a short time period. Are we doing shows just for the sake of doing them? Or was there some sort of master plan here that I'm missing? Trying to create some paydays, create some cash flow. That's where that was. Uh, and I don't know any other reason it could be, uh, quite frankly. So it was, it was, uh, mysterious again. It's hard to generate and jumpstart a company when they have, when it has no momentum, it's just going to take you some time. And for us to get that done, 
it's going to be a year or so of having good shows like we had in, in mobile. Funny story about mobile. Uh, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but in Atlanta, I flew from Atlanta to mobile. Uh, and I went to the crown room and pulled a Gordon Soli. I had a little too much to drink. Uh, and I got on the wrong plane <clears throat> and I went to Pensacola instead of mobile. Their gates are side by side. And so midway through the flight, I don't know how you got on. Cause the ticket said, you know, uh, right city. Uh, but I, uh, got, and I had to get a rental car and drive to the, over to, uh, Pensacola or mobile, wherever the water was, I was still confused. So that was a good deal. You, you take a nap, you wake up and you're in the wrong city on a pay-per-view weekend. So not one of my better days, quite frankly. Uh, but, uh, in any event, it was, I thought we had a good show. It was a fun show. It had a little bit of something for everybody on it. From the observer here, the rest of the show ranged from solid average matches to solid, good matches with little less memorable. The live crowd was approximately 4,000 or about half a building, uh, with a paid attendance of 3,200 and a gate around 28,000. All of these are estimates, of course. And he says, well, it's too early to get anything, but a rough estimate based on reports we had heard before the event and sketchy reports since the event, the show apparently did worse on pay-per-view than the wrestle war show did on May 17th. Considering this show was bolstered by nice plugs in both the USA today and on entertainment tonight and the days preceding the event, it again shows that this one is an uphill battle. Um, Jesse Ventura was the, the person who could maybe help get some of those plugs in USA today. And certainly he was the guy on entertainment tonight. You think he brought any value in promoting the shows? I mean, it doesn't look like it translated to buys, but Jesse Ventura is a name folks want to talk to, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it helped us. Uh, it was a new voice, fresh voice and a familiar, fresh voice. That makes any sense. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think Jesse helped us and without, without any help from me, cause I wasn't been a good team player at that point in time. I regret that as well. Uh, jealous of his money and it's compared to mine, same old shit, c cash and creative. And, uh, I wasn't happy about that, which I didn't, wasn't too flattering for me. I regret those days. Uh, but yeah, I think Jesse helped us in that respect. And, and he was, a, he's a very engaging when Jesse wanted to play, he wanted to go, he was really good. And I, I just, I shake my head and be wonderment of why, uh, I didn't see that. And we could have been a really, really good team if we'd stayed together longer. So you're on commentary with Jesse here and Jim, you're in a Hawaiian shirt. Is that better or worse than a toga? Well, it's easier to pack and easier to wear. <laughs> so I'm going to go with the Hawaiian shirt. I saw a thing the other day on, uh, online on Twitter. It showed four pictures of Bobby Heenan at, at these beach like WCW beach type shows. Same shirt he, over and over and so, over. Did you see that? Yep. Four years, same Hawaiian shirt for four events over about a four year period. In That's fairness, the least, man. You know, we, we should, we should, in fairness, we don't, uh, I mean, how many of us have multiple Hawaiian shirts? I do. Really? Yeah. I love it. I got I two it. of them. <laughs> two. I don't have one. I have two. That's yeah. fantastic. I don't know. I'll be. I have to be, I'll tell you this, I'd be challenged to tell you the last time I wore one of them. 
That there you go. That's the point. Uh, let's get into the show. Our first match is uh, Scotty Flamingo. He's going to win the WCW light heavyweight title from Brian Pillman in 17 minutes and 29 seconds. Now, Scotty Flamingo, uh, not a name that a lot of wrestling fans will remember. Let's call him by another name, Raven. But boy, we're a long way from the Raven character here. Uh, Meltzer would say the match started slow and on the mat, Pillman took a big bump on his face off the top rope to give Flamingo a heat spot. And Flamingo even did a Lucha Libre plancha dive over the top rope. This is 1992. Uh, Pillman sold well, but the match wasn't as fast paced as you'd think. There was no differentiation between a light heavyweight style that would make a heavyweight style in this match, even though it was a good match that opened the show on a strong note. The finish was good with Pillman playing possum and Flamingo showboating by climbing the ropes. Pillman hit a backward superplex and then clothesline Flamingo over the top rope. Pillman did a swan dive over the top rope. Flamingo moved and Pillman crashed face first on the ramp in the move that would have been the most memorable on the entire show had Cactus Jack not put on an insane performance later. Flamingo gets the win with a weak looking knee drop off the middle rope, two and three quarter stars. I don't think a lot of people knew that Raven could wrestle like this. These big dives over the top rope and all that, not very Raven like, but a young Scotty Flamingo showing yeah. he's got what it takes to win this WCW light heavyweight title from Pillman. what did you think well, of this one? He stepped up, maximized his minutes. Simple as that. Yes, he did. Uh, I think a lot of people are like you, Conrad didn't realize he had it in him. And he, 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 he did Scotty. One thing about him, he was, he's, he still is very intelligent. He, he knows what he needs to do to get over. Uh, to go over, get over whatever. Uh, but I thought, uh, he was a little underrated all along and a really good talker and, uh, and a good, I thought he had some potential as a, as a booker type guy or an idea guy, maybe more specifically and better said. So next up, we got Ron Simmons pinning Taylor made man in seven minutes and nine seconds. Meltzer would say Taylor looked to take some uh, good fast bumps and pretty much carried this to a decent match. Simmons missed the tackle and flew onto the ramp, giving Taylor a short advantage. Simmons made a comeback and won with a Doug furnace, like fast power slam, two stars. So Ron Simmons and, and, and Terry Taylor, two very capable performers. We know eventually not too long from now, Ron Simmons is going to become world champion. It feels like Terry Taylor is still trying to find his identity. This Taylor made man persona felt like a dollar store, million dollar man gimmick to me. He probably deserved better. He looked good. He had great matches, but he just never really got a big break with either company. Is that based on his real life personality? Some behind the scenes bias, or I got to believe that there's some behind the scenes bias that, that largely Terry created. Okay. You know, he, he could, he could be his own worst enemy. And he, sometimes he didn't know when to be silent and when to talk. Got and it. So he alienated himself, unfortunately, uh, was it necessary? Was it fair? <clears throat> Pardon me. Probably not, but that's how it was. And it was that way for him for a long time. Next up, uh, we've got, uh, Greg Valentine and Marcus Bagwell. I can't believe Greg Valentine's even on this card. I totally forgot. He was even here in this era. I still associated him with being with the WWF here, but he's going to make Bagwell tap out to the figure four leg lock in seven minutes and 15 seconds. Um, Meltzer would say Bagwell is still tentative in the ring, but was trying hard. Valentine was slow, but his moves were solid. Bagwell missed a knee drop at three minutes and 40 seconds. And Valentine worked the leg for a few minutes. Bagwell got a short comeback, but the knee went out while he was doing a leapfrog and Valentine put him away with the figure four. 
The match was fine since everything made sense and a baby face actually submitted since they obviously need to get submission holds over if they're going to change to a serious wrestling style. So a lot to unpack. This match was voted as the worst match in the show by the observer readers, but it's really not a bad match, which I guess shows that, you know, there's a hidden gem of professional wrestling here. Greg Valentine knows how to work. Uh, he's a little old school and that he's not going to be super fast paced. He's going to take his time and tell a story. This all is logical. I like the idea that we're saying we're going to make submission moves matter. Uh, and Bagwell, we know is going to be, you know, the, the white meat baby face, whatever that we're, that we've been looking to develop here in WCW. I think he wins rookie of the year more than once, which always made me laugh, <laughs> uh, yeah. but he's a guy who you could see. All right. He's got a future. He's going to be somebody, but not tonight, kid. We're going to get over Greg Valentine's finish. What'd you think of this one? No problem. You know, uh, it was, what do we need worse heels or baby faces? Uh, getting a Valentine. I, I had a problem with it. No, I had no problem with it. You know, Bagwell was just getting started. Uh, that one, one a win or a loss in that match is not going to make or break what he was doing. Right. So I had no issue with it. And now it's time to talk about the match and boy, what a match it is. If you're going to watch one thing from this show, this is it go out of your way. It's sting and cactus Jack in an explosive match. That's what Meltzer called it, but really it's a false count anywhere on the Gulf coast match, which always made me laugh 11 <laughs> minutes, 26 seconds. And Meltzer would say they never quite made it to the beach, but it was the match of the card. They started brawling on the ramp. Cactus took a backdrop on the ramp and a face buster on the ramp. Sting crotched himself on the top rope when cactus ducked a body block. Jack did an elbow off the apron, uh, with no padding on the floor. Of course, ouch. And then a neck breaker on the floor, a sunset flip off the apron to the floor and cactus Jack took a backdrop over the guardrail and a suplex on the floor. This is one of the gutsiest and most insane performances I've ever, I've ever seen. Jack starts selling the knee. Jack gives sting three chair shots to the back until sting comes back with a back suplex on the concrete with Jack landing on his head. Uh, Jack later missed the knee drop on the middle rope to the floor, injuring the knee once again. And Sting came back with three chair shots, the third one to the right knee and went for the scorpion on the ramp, but both men fell off the ramp to the floor. Cactus does a double arm DDT on the ramp, but Sting kicks out and came back with a clothesline off the top rope. And since this was no DQ, that move is legal, but it's onto the ramp. And then he pins Jack on the ramp and Meltzer would say Cactus Jack has a lot of guts, but you simply can't do matches like this very often and enjoy a lengthy career. He gave it four and a half stars. This is a one man show. Don't get me wrong. Sting was a great dance partner, but Mick Foley proved to everyone that night. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be a star and boy, he became one. Did he not? Absolutely. Mick just, <clears throat> pardon me. Mick wanted to get over and the way that in his mind, <clears throat> how Mick Foley gets got over was using the concrete floor and other, uh, you know, inanimate objects that hurt and he did it a lot. So uh, you just kept saying, well, this has got to be it. This has got to be it. And it just kept going and coming and going. It was just, uh, it was amazing, but it was, uh, a testament in courage and maybe ignorance. I'm not sure. I would not, uh, I would not recommend Mick ever do a match like that again afterwards. And of course he did on a regular basis. He's a star, man. He was a star. He was, uh, and I cowboy loved him because his willingness to, to go the extra mile and, and, uh, you know, you didn't have to worry about Mick being an hour late to, no. come to work. 
things like that. You know, he was just going to be great. And, uh, but yeah, he was, he's a star. And, and, uh, just the question was always going to be same thing. Meltzer brought up very obvious. How long can he keep, can, how long can he do this? Right. Under, under these auspices and the common sense answer would be not long. Next up, we've got Ricky steamboat and Rick rude. Uh, they're going to do an Ironman challenge that goes 30 minutes. Uh, steamboat wins four falls to three. Uh, Meltzer would say the outcome pretty well guaranteed when they announced it was a non-title match, which should have never been made clear on television promotion for this match. And the story of the match was pretty good. Both of these guys are top-notch workers, but I personally, I, and I, I've taken a little flack for this, Jim, I don't like Ironman matches. I feel like if it's an Ironman match, I can treat it like NBA playoffs. Let me tune in for the f- last five minutes and I'll pretty well get the story. And that's not to say I don't enjoy wrestling and and all that, but I think one of the things I like about wrestling is, uh, a lot of times it's positioned like, um, like UFC, you know, I'm on the edge of my seat during UFC because any punch, any submission, any take down, it could end at any time. Right. Uh, and that was one of the fun things that they brought back several years ago when, when Goldberg came back to WWE and beat Brock Lesnar with a spear and a jackhammer just right away. Nobody saw that coming. That unpredictability, I think is one of the fun things about wrestling. But when you tell people, Hey, um, we'll know who the winner is in 30 minutes. I feel like even if I'm watching, I'm sort of subconsciously checked out thinking, all right, well, things are going to happen, but no finishes for 25 more minutes. And I don't know. It takes me out. What do you say? Where are you at on the iron man concept? Well, we have a difference of opinion there. I like them. Yeah. Uh, but I like calling them. From my role as a broadcaster, I enjoyed because I had a, a big, a beginning, a middle and an end to this 30 minute story. And for me and to, to structure my commentary and to put this, to pieces in place of this puzzle, to tell the story, uh, uh, I, I had no issues with it. So I have a little di- different philosophy than you do. Uh, I remember having an Ironman match. I think we had one in England or someplace involving, uh, Sean Michaels and, uh, John Cena. Yeah, it was a great one. See matches like that. I, I remember it right off the top of my head, uh, even though it's been so long ago, Yeah, it was, it was one isolated match. So I kind of like them Conrad, but I can see your reasoning and I, I can't blow a hole in your philosophy. It's, it's a, it's a viable way of looking at it. It just, I don't happen to agree with that philosophy. Meltzer would be critical of the finish saying this was ridiculous since they spent the entire show trying to get over that coming off the top ropes was illegal. And then steamboat comes off the top rope to win the deciding fall with 30 seconds left. Rude hits clotheslines and near falls one after the other until the bell sounds and steamboat is declared the winner three and a half stars. Um, these two guys just click, you know, I mean, I, I think we've all established that, uh, Ricky steamboat is one of the best in-ring performers of all time. I think Rick rude was probably criminally underrated, maybe cast yeah. more of a, a character, if you will, in the WWF, but the guy could wrestle and tell stories too. And, and he had being a heel down pats so you have, I mean, I can't even imagine Rick rude as a baby face, but I can't imagine <laughs> Rick rude as a heel. So, or, or Ricky steamboat as a heel. So this really worked the perfect baby face, the perfect heel. I enjoyed the match. I just maybe didn't love the concept. Yeah. Well, there you go. But I, I get you, but the, they, they had, they, for what the match was, whether you liked it or you didn't like it, uh, they worked hard. They told a viable story and, uh, it's two great talents, uh, doing their thing. And I'm with you there. 
I could watch those matches all day. I, I just, uh, I thought they were got those guys delivered art on a, on a unique canvas. Next up, Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham and Nikita Koloff. What a, what a six man that is. Think about the talent there. Barry Windham, one of the best wrestlers in the world. I think a lot of people would argue in 85, 86, 87, he maybe was Dustin Rhodes is the natural, still very young, still trying to find his voice. We know now he's an absolute legend. Nikita Koloff, I mean, a throwback to JCP just over like Rover for a handful of years here. And they're going to be taking on Steve Austin, the biggest star in the history of the business, Bobby Eaton. And, and Arn Anderson. And I think if you were to say, Hey, who, wow. are, who are the best that ever did it? Most people would probably include Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson as being the most underrated in-ring performers of all time. So what a crew in here and they get plenty of time, 15 and a half minutes, but Arn gets himself disqualified by the special guest referee, Ollie Anderson. And what's he disqualified for coming off the top rope. Meltzer would say basically the match was to get the top rope rule over once again. Plus get Ole Anderson over as a baby face by disqualifying his supposed relative, uh, Rhodes and Austin worked really well together and Eaton works better with one arm than most wrestlers do with two <laughs> yeah, that's solid true. all the way, but nothing spectacular or out of the ordinary two and three quarter stars. What a roster you guys have. I mean, I just want to run through what we've seen so far. The, the future Raven against Brian Pillman. That's the opener, the future world champion, Ron Simmons against Terry Taylor. Greg Valentine, a hall of famer and Marcus Bagwell sting and cactus Jack stole the show, then steamboat and Rick rude. And now this six man, this is about as loaded of a roster as you could ask for. Yeah, it was. And, uh, it was, a, and the, and those guys all were put in a good positions to succeed. You know, anytime you put, uh, Arn and Bobby Eaton and stone cold in a match together, uh, that's what we had, right? That was a six man team. Yeah. Sh shit boy. That's. You, you got gold, you got gold. And I, uh, I, I'm with you. It's, it's surprising that we didn't do better than we did considering the level of talent that we had that was available. Still, you got to use the talent. You got to still, you got to book them, right. You got to get them going and build some momentum and so forth. Uh, but we had, uh, a, a, a very quietly gifted and talented roster. Next up, and boy, do I love this. We get a promo with Cactus Jack attacking Ricky Steamboat during an interview with Eric Bischoff. The series of matches that could have been, man, that could have been something special. Talk about Styles Clash, Steamboat, and Cactus Jack. But I want to mention that throughout the show, we're doing a bikini contest that 11 year old Conrad was very interested in. <laughs> Good boy. It was Medusa and Missy Hyatt. They're going to declare the first lady of WCW. It's going to be spread into three different rounds. And Meltzer would say, those type things are either hits or misses. And even though both women are in great shape as in great shape, it was a miss because Johnny B bad couldn't carry his role. And in the final round, Jesse Ventura's help fell flat. I'm not against doing skits or comedy between serious matches because you need a change of pace in between hard hitting matches, but this didn't come off well and really came off as a desperation tactic from start to finish. First, they came out in evening gowns. Then Medusa came out in a one piece and Missy in a two piece. And finally, Medusa in a two-piece and Missy in a two-piece, which was supposedly the head wrap from Jesse Ventura's head. Missy was the baby face here, so they raised her hand when it was over and then said the results would be announced on TV the next day. It seems <laughs> like something that wouldn't sit well with people who paid $19.95 to see the no show. Shit. And uh, they said the fans would decide on the 900 number, and it was a pretty sleazy late con in the show. 
announcing that Medusa was ahead 51 to 49% since Missy was the face as a way to encourage more brainless people to call in for Missy thinking one vote would make a difference. So I understand as a kid, I was keeping up with none of that. I was just like, Hey, look at this. Uh, but now as an adult, I can you're, say, you were thinking, look at those. Listen to you. <laughs> that's, that's what it was. You weren't looking at their goddamn ankles. Well, Man, she's got the sexiest ankles I've ever seen. I didn't even know that I, I knew ankles were a thing in, in, in 1992. Yeah, probably not. Chat me up. Uh, what do you think of this bit that we're going to do a bikini contest on pay-per-view and then we're going to encourage you to call and vote on the hotline horse shit. Yeah. Total horse shit, man. What do you think? I think about it. It's horrible. <laughs> God. And we didn't need three versions of it. No, Look, one, they came fine. there to, they came there for this quote unquote contest to see these women in bikinis Yes, are in something comparable to a bikini. Yes. Simple as that not evening gown and all that <laughs> evening gown, those rednecks down there and, uh, and uh, mobile all 4,000 of them. They didn't come there to see no goddamn evening gowns. No. So, you know, anyway, too much. It, it could have been done in one segment, bing, bing in out. See you later, but it wasn't. And, and the, and the bait and switch thing at the end was absolute, uh, travesty. So let's, uh, let's run through the main event here. We got Rick and Scott Steiner retaining the WCW tag team titles, going to a draw with Terry Gordy and Steve Williams. They go 28 minutes and 22 seconds. It was announced as a 30 minute draw. And Meltzer would say it was both a good match and a bad match for people who've watched Japanese tapes and, or are fans of amateur wrestling and actually understand the moves they're doing. It was pretty watchable. It was evident from seeing the fans live, give no reaction to anything except weak pops for the signers comebacks that the fans have been taught that those moves work and see different moves like crabs, arm bars, spinning toe holds, et cetera, used as winning holds before fans see them as anything more than boring mat work. Fans also have no idea what to make of Gordy and Williams. They're obviously not faces, but have never been pushed as heels, except for that ridiculous Japanese costuming that fans didn't seem to react to. The wrestling itself was solid all the way through. Although Gordy and Williams sell a lot better than the Steiners. The stuff with the mat was hard hitting as a foundation for the feud and to establish Gordy and Williams as a team on par with the Steiners, this was probably a good idea to do the Broadway, but it left the show ending on a flat note, three and a quarter stars. And Jim, I've wanted to watch this again, uh, in years past. And I think maybe three years ago, I watched it again because I kind of forgot. I remembered the, the sting match. I remembered the rude match. I certainly never forgot the bikini thing. And I thought, man, Terry Gordy and Steve Williams and the Steiners, I got to go watch this. And even watching it a few years ago, I was disappointed that it went on last and it was a draw. I just, I don't know. I mean, at that point it was on the network and I wasn't paying 20 bucks, but a draw in the main event. Uh, I don't know. What say you didn't bother me. It's part of the game. Yeah. It can happen. It's viable. It's realistic. It's believable. You could have a draw. That's why we had a time limit. And, uh, I, I like that match. Of course I was, I'm a mark for those two teams and, you know, I worked very diligently to get that match booked and I worked very diligently to get doc and Gordy here or there at that point in time. So, uh, so it didn't bother me, Connie. It's just back to old school wrestling. The last match it had a time limit and they used all of it and it kept the story alive and we, we lived to fight another day. So I, I enjoyed didn't have a problem with it whatsoever. Uh, I can see your situation philosophically. 
You know, we I want we got to send them home happy. Not necessarily. That's it's my take. This has been uh, a fun show to review. Uh, Meltzer would say the only thing on here that is must see is Sting and Cactus Jack. I totally agree. I think it's a fun show. I, I agree. It was a thumbs up for me. Uh, but that one, I think you should go out of your way to see what say you, Jim thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle, uh, a thumbs up. Uh, I liked it. Uh, and there's, there's, there are too many moments on there that to, to not make it a, not a thumbs up, you know, too many things that, <clears throat> that we've talked about here, uh, today that would prevent it. There's just nothing on there that prevented it to be a bad show. Was it a great show? Probably not a great show, but it was a good show. Thumbs up on that deal. Uh, Brad Stanton wants to know, I was a big Rick rude fan. Who reminds you of him today? Mr. Ross. Oh, wow. Well, it's hard. I don't know. He's that's the great thing about being a star. Like Rick had his own look, his own feel, his own presentation. Uh, I don't know who that would be, uh, to be honest with you. Who do you think? You know, I don't, I, it's a great question because I didn't have somebody that just immediately jumped to mind, but me neither. Um, I think that's what makes him so special and so unique when you can look yep. back and you say, you know, there's not a modern day Hogan. There's not a modern day rude. There's not a modern day warrior, whoever, whatever you thought of those guys, they were iconic characters and there's not right. one like them now. And, and I think that's why they, they live on. I agree. Uh, Joseph Walter says, do you miss custom entrance sets? Do you think they gave a unique flavor and distinguished look to a show or does it really matter? I'm not a big on, <clears throat> there's certain things in life and wrestling that don't move my needle. Uh, and that would be, uh, things like, uh, entrance music. I like, I have, I like the music. I'm not a connoisseur. I can't tell you it should have two beats instead of three. I don't know all that. Uh, but some of that, those aesthetic things don't, don't work. Doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. Uh, I'd rather get right to the, our business and get after it. Uh, so, but no, I don't, I don't, it, it was a non-plus to me, Connie, in that question. Well, next week, we're going to be talking about King of the ring, 2002, the next big thing, Brock Lesnar is going to take the crown. The undertaker is going to defend his WWE title against triple H Hollywood Hogan will be in there with Kurt angle. Rick flair's working Eddie Guerrero. Of course, we'll also be talking about Steve Austin walking out on the company, which is pretty regrettable. And even maybe more regrettable is the rock coming back to cut a promo on him. Uh, undertaker working with a very young Randy Orton. How in hindsight, uh, a great match could have been had between Eddie and, uh, Steve Austin. Chris Benoit is going to come back. We also get that Eddie Guerrero and Rob Van Dam memorable ladder match from Edmonton flares return to the ring. Sean Michaels is back as a member of the NWO. A lot of stuff to talk about next week, but between now and then you and I are going to be firing up that grill more than once. Got I assure you got to baby. JRSBBQ.com is where I go to get all of my seasoning. I just had a great conversation with a, a mutual friend of ours who said, Hey man, do you use the JR's, um, main event mustard as a binder? And I was like, are you smoking meat over there? And I didn't know, let me just tell <laughs> you main event mustard works on everything. Uh, and the seasoning does too. We're even having some of our listeners tell us they're putting the seasoning on their eggs for breakfast. It makes all your protein. Everything tastes better. There's something for everybody at jrsbbq.com, right, Jim? Yeah, there is. And we appreciate everybody's support of our site. Conrad mentioned, I slipped it in there earlier. Don't cost nothing to look. Yeah. See, we're in the season. Grilling's a fun thing. It's a family thing. You can entertain your friends, your family, your buddies uh, on, with your grill. So, uh, business has been good. 
you know, Stephen Link, who runs my site there, got bacterial pneumonia and he damn near died. Oh. And uh so we've got him back on his feet now and back rolling. And I know the last I was home last week in Oklahoma after uh after uh Los Angeles. I went back to Oklahoma City to Norman and then uh uh did of course I did some grilling. But uh, I I just I believe that uh the grilling season is just never, never ends. And so hope you give us a shot folks, just try, check it out, go to the site, look at all the things you've got, get yourself a mule mug and uh, then, then put some Tito's in there and make yourself a mule. I plan on doing that a little bit later today. As a matter of fact, I just got to have it part of the, part of the, part of the weekend. It is part of the weekend. Uh, let me just mention too, over at jrsbbq.com. It's more than just barbecue sauce. And yes, they have hot and original. It's more than just jerky. It's more than just seasoning. It's more than, it's more than any of that. I want to mention there's some other really cool Jim Ross collectibles that we don't really talk about a lot here on the show. If you really like to cook at home, let's recommend the cutting board. Let's recommend the grilling kit. It's branded with Jim Ross's logos and stuff. The famous hat, the autograph, the signature. If there's a wrestling fan in your life who likes to grill and likes all this sort of thing, they're going to love these opportunities, but maybe you're like Jim and I, and you enjoy a cocktail every now and again. Stay tuned. They're sold out, but one day they'll be back those copper mule mugs. And in the meantime, speaking of sold out, can I recommend these trading cards? Uh, one of them's already sold out, but we've still got some autographed trading cards from Jim Ross. If you've paid attention to what's happening in the trading card market in the last few years, these things are going bananas. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is Jr. has underpriced his cards and he doesn't know it. Go pick it up before he knows it. <laughs> JRsbbq.com. You can get a Jim Ross autographed trading card for like 25 bucks. Guys, it's worth a multiple of that. Go take a look for yourself while you're there. Pick up some sauce, pick up some seasoning. It's jrsbbq.com. Jim, this was a lot of fun, man. I know our schedules haven't been aligned. You've been traveling. I've been traveling. Paulie Bromwell's been in the game, but I'm yeah. excited to be back with you today and pumped about King of the Ring 02 next week, man. This is going to be fun. Oh, oh Paulie does a good job uh, representing us, uh, Connie. Does a good job. I enjoy working with him. Uh, I had fun this week uh, or last week as, as this is. Uh, with uh, Lauren uh, on a call-in thing that uh, Q and A, that was fun. Has some good, good, good participation there. And she, I don't think she could show more cleavage and not go to jail. <laughs> What's up with that? She wanted some suggestions on ring announcing. I said, just show cleavage. They're not going to listen to you anyway. Right. They're going to be looking. Well, they will be looking. <laughs> they will be looking, and and uh, so it's. But it's a good, good time. Good time to be a wrestling fan. Starcast. I can't wait for that. I think you're, I think you got another hit on your hands. We talked a little bit, uh, uh on that uh, show with Lauren about Chicago. There's just all kinds of great things coming up. If you're a wrestling fan, it's nothing better right now, man. Things are good. Things are fun and good. And we've had some great shows in AEW, and I think we did a great job opening our two shows in California did well, our first million dollar gate. Uh, in LA, it was kind of cool being in that, uh, the fabulous forum where we saw so many great basketball games and the Lakers and all that stuff. It was just really neat. Good trip out there. And then back into good old meat, potato, Kansas city, and then St. Louis now, and our, and just in our rear view mirror. So things are good. Things are good here. Just, uh, I'm loving going to work and I think we're putting on some good stuff. We just got to get over the injury bug and all that good stuff. And that's just part of it. That's just part of it, man. It's part of it. It's bit everybody, you know, Cody's got the torn peck. CM Punk had the big, uh, 
foot injury. Uh, the NWA champion, Matt Cardona, tore his bicep. Bruce Pritchard's torn his rotator cuff. Get out of here. Yeah. JR's hobbling around trying to get that, that wound to heal. Man, everybody's fighting and playing hurt these days, but it's that fighting spirit. And we hope that you guys are, uh, <laughs> are digging what we're doing. We're working hard to entertain you. We hope you'll check out what we're doing over at adfreeshows.com. You get all these shows early and ad free. We got some of JR's old radio shows, some of the old hotlines. You get to interact with JR every week. If you were already a top guy, you'd be joining us for a, maybe a dream weekend. I know we're going to have a lot of fun at the end of July and Starcast, but man, when you come to a top guy weekend, you can leave your wallet at home. It's just one superstar after another one interactive event after another. Uh, but if you're not, don't worry, you can still make plans to join us in Nashville, Jim, we've announced it. And I think you may have seen it, but how cool is it that we're recreating the old TBS six Oh five set. We're going to have an opportunity for fans to get their picture made with, That's awesome. with, with Dave Crockett and Tony Schiavone. And you're right in the middle. We've even got Rick in his retirement robe and the big gold bell on that old set. We've got all the horsemen on that old set, really once in a lifetime photo ops. You'll never see it again. If you're a wrestling collector or you grew up on the heyday of professional wrestling, or maybe you were a WWF kid and you want to meet Bret Hart. He's not doing many of these anymore. Come see us, check us out. Starcast.com. That's S T A R R C A S T.com. And we're not done. I'm trying to talk a good old friend of ours into making the trek to Nashville. So stay tuned. <laughs> we'll be back rather sooner rather than later, right here every Thursday. Grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. And the voice of Roller Derby that just hasn't happened yet. Thanks everybody for uh, <laughs> thanks everybody for joining us. We'll see you next week and uh, we appreciate your support always. Thank you. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.